0: And as you're being seated this morning, would you grab your copy of God's Word in whatever format you have it, and would you turn to the book of Revelation? It's the very last book at the end of your Bible, and we're going to be this morning in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, looking at one of the seven letters to the seven churches, and this one is written to the church in Thyatira. So Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just some light reading for this Sunday. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would have its intended intended effect on us, that it would keep us from wrong counsel, keep us from wrong actions, keep us from wrong paths, and Lord, that we would delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night, that it would... Anchor the roots of our soul in deep soil, that we would be like trees planted by streams of water that yield fruit and are not blown and tossed by the wind. Lord, help us to understand your word and to live in light of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is jealousy a negative characteristic? Is jealousy a negative characteristic? And the reason I ask that is because we often think of the characteristic of jealousy in purely negative terms and there is some good reason for that. There's the jealousy of a child who sits in the corner sulking at his sibling's birthday party because he cannot handle the fact that the attention is not on him. He doesn't get to blow out the candles and he doesn't get to open the presents. Well, then there's the jealousy of a teammate who won't join his other teammates uh, in celebration because he can't handle the fact that he wasn't the one who scored the winning goal, who made the winning basket. The attention's not on him. And then there is a jealousy that often lurks in our own hearts and lives, and it corrodes our joy, it erodes our contentment, because we are so busy taking notice of who has more than and better than us that we can't enjoy what we have. That kind of jealousy is negative, and it is destructive. We we want to put that off. But it's not the only kind of jealousy that the Bible speaks of. There is a jealousy that is not only positive, but it is purifying and God-honoring. And I'm speaking primarily of God's own jealousy, the jealousy of God. After the nation of Israel had thought that Moses was gone too long and that he was done for, they decide to throw some gold in a fire, or this is Aaron's version of the story, and out pops this golden calf, and they worship it and bow down and said, Behold, the God who led you out of Egypt. And after Moses comes down and has some dealings with them, let's say, and God renews the covenant, this is one of the things that the Lord says to the nation of Israel. You shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. So God is jealous, but he's not jealous because he's needy and insecure and suspicious and has an unhealthy desire for control, like maybe some middle school romance might have. He's jealous because he so loves the people that he created that he cannot be indifferent toward their unfaithfulness. That's the jealousy of God. It is a holy jealousy, and it's displayed and imitated by Jesus in the letters. Just just ignore that. Stephen, you have to flip the breaker in the closet across from the nursery. There you go. This is it. God is jealous, and he wants your attention, and some of you are distracted by the lights. So Jesus displays this jealousy of God to the letters, to the seven churches, particularly to the church in Thyatira. So you're reading through these seven letters as we've been going through them. And you could see, and maybe you could misread Jesus and think, you know, he seems very harsh. He seems very critical. He seems very demanding. He must look at his church with a permanent scowl because he's always disappointed with his church. But that would be a misreading of Jesus's uh, rebuke of the church. Instead, we should read these letters and understand that Jesus loves his bride, the church, so much so that he cannot be indifferent toward her when she is going after other lovers, when she is going after someone other than him. He's not chiding his church as much as he is running after his church and calling his church back to himself. That's what Jesus is doing in these letters. Jesus chose his bride. Therefore, he cannot bear when his bride would choose another. Jesus loved his church so much that he laid down his life for her, that he shed his own blood to purchase her. Therefore, he cannot endure that anything should come between him and his church. That's how much he loves his church. So what is the main overarching message of this letter to Thyatira? It's this. Jesus who purchased the church with his own blood, is jealous for her faithfulness. Therefore, we must be zealous to pursue purity in gratitude to him. Jesus is jealous for his bride's faithfulness. Therefore, we must be zealous to pursue purity. That's what this letter is about. So what does it look like for the church to pursue purity in faithfulness to Jesus? Well, one way we pursue purity is by acknowledging the inescapable sight of Jesus. We pursue purity by acknowledging the inescapable sight of Jesus. So there are three statements in your Bibles, if you can see them still, that indicate that nothing escapes the sight of Jesus. Jesus is one who, he not only sees everything, but he sees through and into everything. So look at verse 18, how Jesus describes himself. He describes himself as the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. This is quite a uh, description that takes you back. And what it means is that the eyes of Christ, when they look at you, don't just look at you, but they see you as you really are. It burns away all external facades, all masks, all Instagram filters, and it sees what's really there, the real you. And you've had that maybe where you, you make eye contact with someone and you think, are, are they looking at me, or they, do they know something about me? This is why whenever a preacher preaches, you have to be careful making eye contact when you say something specific. <laughs> so if I you know, start looking at Mike and say, you know, some of you need to increase your giving, and I'm making eye contact with him, he's like, does he know? Does he know? <laughs> or if I look at one of the kids, and I say, I've heard... One of you kids has not been obeying your mom, and I'm looking right at Wiley Ashcroft. He's thinking, I should pay attention. He knows. He knows. Well, there's a sense in which you can never fully exhaustively say that of another human being, but you can say it of Christ. He sees the real us. His eyes burn through all external facades. Well, then look at verse 19. Each of the letters to the seven churches Start with this. The body of the letter starts with the statement, I know. I know. And then it goes on to list what the church should be encouraged by, what he commends them for, and then he goes on to say what the church should be corrected for. And what Jesus is displaying there is that there is not a detail too minute, there is not a detail too mundane in the life of the church that Jesus does not know it exhaustively, thoroughly, and perfectly. He knows everything because nothing escapes his sight. All things are laid bare before him. And then jump down to verse 23. And notice, and we're going to come to this section a little bit later, but Jesus, when he states that he's going to judge that false teacher in the midst of the church, that he's going to take matters into his own hands in Thyatira, this will be one of the results of him taking matters into his own hands. It says, and all the churches will know that I am he who, who searches mind and heart. So we can see outward actions, right? Christ can see every single internal motive. We often struggle to make proper judgments. We can judge a book by a cover and we can be wrong because we we look at the outward appearance. But Jesus sees through to the heart. He has a soul-searching, heart-piercing gaze. So no motive, no thought, no deed ever escapes the eyes of Jesus, which means that our attempts... At sneaking and covering up and hiding are utterly futile, utterly futile. I grew up in the church, and I served in the nursery with my parents. We, you know They'd have like a family serve, and we helped in the twos and threes class. And I remember this because they, they like to play hide-and-seek. So you, you play in this room. It's an open room. You can't really hide. And yet, the kids still want to play hide-and-seek. And here's how they play hide-and-seek. They go to a, an open spot in the corner of the room. They close their eyes and cover their eyes, and they think, Because I can't see you, you can't see me. That's how they hid. And then when you found them, they were shocked. They, how'd you you find me? I I couldn't see you. Well, when we try to hide our sin, we are as foolish and silly as a three-year-old closing his eyes in plain sight, thinking that no one is going to be able to find us. It is silly. Jesus sees everything, and he sees through everything. And so in one sense, this is terrifying, because it teaches us that what we may be able to hide from others and are often successful at, we cannot hide from the Lord. He is undefeated at hide-and-seek, as it were. But in another sense, this should overwhelm us with gratitude because Jesus, who knows the real you inside and out, who sees everything that no one else sees, all the way to the bottom, those things you've hidden from others, that he sees... He sees all that, and yet he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That he took those sins of yours that no one else sees upon his own shoulders, and he said, that is not going to deter me from going to the cross for your sin. All those things that we've hidden, he sees, he bears, and he nails to the cross that we might bear them no more the guilt of them, the shame of them, the needing to hide in them because he paid our debt in full. That is what is true of those who place their faith in Christ. Everything that they can hide from others, they cannot hide from him and yet he still loved us and gave himself up for us. So how can we not live in purity and faithfulness before the one who sees us, the real us, and redeemed us, the real us? Well, a second way we pursue purity and faithfulness to Jesus is by caring about the right kind of church growth. So every church has priorities and values. It's certain things that it cares about above and beyond other things. Many of you are thinking right now, our highest priority is a building with electricity. That is our (laughs) number one priority. Well, the question always for the church with its values and priorities is, are these priorities and values shaped by Christ or are they shaped by the culture and the world around us? So in five of the seven of these letters, Jesus points out something commendable to the churches. Two of them, he doesn't point out anything commendable. Well, in the five letters, when he points out something commendable, he is demonstrating what he values and prioritizes in a church. He's displaying in his commendation, this is what I delight in. This is what I take joy in, in my church. And so look with me at verse 19 and notice what Jesus commends in the church at Thyatira. So verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So he points out these four qualities, love, faith, service, patient endurance, and not just those four qualities. He points out that they're growing in these, that where they started and where they are now, there's, you can quantify it, it's grown. It's been exponential. And so the kind of church growth that Jesus values and delights in is growth in godliness, is a cultivation of Christ-like character. That's what Jesus values. That's the church growth he loves. Christ values the church growth of increasing love. So as a church, we must value growing to love one another as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That's the church growth we want. Christ values the church growth of deepening faith. So as a church, we must value growing in And knowing and trusting and resting reliantly on the sovereignty of God who loves us and takes care of us, the maker of heaven and earth. That's the kind of church growth we should value. And Christ values the church growth of sacrificial service. That's what he loves to see growing in a church. People who consider the needs and interests of others as more important than their own and are willing to lay down their rights their time, their talents, their treasures to meet those needs. That's the kind of church growth that Jesus values. So do we as a church care most about the kind of church growth that Jesus values? For you personally, is that what you find most valuable in a church and even seek for in your own life? Is that the kind of value that is bearing fruit in the life of the church and your own life? Because it's so easy to turn our focus and attention toward the wrong kind of church priority, church value, church growth model, and move away from what is most valuable to Christ. For example, a worldly-based mindset, which is focused on success, loves measurable metrics, focuses on these ABCs of church growth, attendance, building, and cash. That is the kind of thing you want to grow in as a church, because you can measure those metrics that are successful, and yet you will search the Bible in vain to find those as values of Christ. You will not find them anywhere commending the church because they had more numbers this year than last year. You will not find Jesus commending a church because they have a nice building. You will not find Christ commending a church because they have a lot of cash in their bank. You will not find that. But when you look at the scriptures, the biblically-based values of church that Jesus delights and that he wants to see growing is marked by faithfulness, not successfulness, faithfulness, not successfulness. And it's these ABCs of church growth, affections, belief, and character, a growing love for Christ, a growing knowledge of Christ, and a growing likeness to Christ. That's what Christ values in the church, those ABCs, not the other ones. And here's why this is important. When our, when our values shift, from what Christ values and delights in, and they, they move toward a worldly-based kind of success, measurable metric mindset, that is often the beginning of walking down the road to compromise. Because you'll you'll, you'll stop at nothing to meet those metrics, and you'll, you'll say that the ends justify the means, and the means are not biblical, but they're good ends, right? That is the road to compromise. Caring about the right kind of church growth is often the means by which we're helped in picking up the pace on the path to purity. We want to value the right things, and so we want to pursue them more zealously. Well, a third way we pursue purity and faithfulness to Jesus is by practicing the right kind of judgment. So we want to value the right kind of church growth, but Jesus says in this letter, we also want to practice the right kind of judgment. And, And by judgment, what I mean is not being judgmental towards people, but right kind of judgment means is we, we know that there is an objective standard of truth and morality defined by and driven from the scriptures by which we assess our beliefs and our conduct, our belief and our behavior. And when we're out of line with those things, the Bible does call us to come in alignment with those through rebuke, through admonishment, through correction, through gentle um, calling people back. And the reason we need to stress that we need to practice the right kind of judgment is because often, even people who don't value the scriptures, don't care about the scriptures, they have a favorite Bible verse that they've memorized. It's Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge lest you too be judged. And perhaps this has been used against you and many seem to think that this gives them an impenetrable moral force field which allows them to keep doing whatever they want to do and nobody can tell them any differently. Or, Maybe you look you look at this verse and maybe you think that Jesus is zipping up your lips, locking the door of your lips and then throwing away the key so that no matter how doctrinally and morally off someone is, you just need to keep your mouth shut. That's not what Matthew seven one teaches. And I know that because of what Jesus says in Revelation two twenty to twenty three. Scripture must interpret scripture. Scripture does not contradict scripture. We need to let all parts inform us on a particular practice and idea. But I think what Jesus is doing, in Matthew 7:1, Jesus is dealing with one ditch on the side of the road of a proper judgment. So if you've ever driven in like a country uh, town where you got dirt roads, there's ditches and they're big ditches and you don't want to go in those ditches, especially in the snow. And in the Christian life, we're often trying to navigate between two ditches. And in Matthew 7:1 on one side of the road is the ditch of hypocritical, heavy-handed judgmentalism, a kind that is always prosecuting faults in others and always defending faults in self. That is the kind of judgment that Jesus is going after in Matthew 7 1 saying, that is wrong, a hypocritical, hypercritical judgmentalism. But there is a ditch on the other side of the road, and we don't want to overcorrect the car. And on the other side of the road is... An uncritical open-mindedness that accepts everything in the name of tolerance and a bad definition of love. And Jesus doesn't want the church bus to go in either ditch. He wants it to stay down the middle of the road and practice a right kind of judgment that is not hypocritical and heavy-handed, and neither is it uncritical and just open-minded. And so in this instance with the church in Thyatira, they're driving the bus to the ditch over there and uncritical open-mindedness in the name of tolerance. And so Jesus rebukes them for failing to practice a right kind of judgment. Look at verse 20 in Revelation 2, if you can see it. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrifice to idols. So as far as we can reconstruct the background of this uh, situation, there was a woman who came into the church, a member of some sorts, connected to the church, who claimed to be a prophetess, which means she claimed to have special access to special knowledge that other people didn't have access to. And if you want to get it, you got to go through her. And so when she would teach, she would claim that her teaching was on the same level as thus saith the Lord kind of stuff. That's what a prophet claims to be, someone who speaks on behalf of the Lord, who has special access to special knowledge that the common people don't have access to. And apparently she was quite good at it, quite charismatic in her practice of it because she was drawing people away. Jesus says, you're seducing my servant. She's drawing people away. She's not bad at what she's doing. And her teaching essentially amounted to saying that it's permissible for believers to participate in the idolatrous and immoral practices of the pagan culture around them. That Rome and the trade guilds in this area had all sorts of practices where they connected work and politics with pagan religion. And to participate in work and politics, you had to participate in the pagan religion. And so they they engaged in these practices, probably as a way of kind of flying under the radar, keeping their job, whatever, you name it. And here they have someone who says, "You you can have it both ways. You can have your cake and you can eat it too. Because she was promoting, to call it what it is, a spiritual polygamy. Saying, it's okay to worship Jesus and the gods of the culture around you. It's okay to do both. You can, you can have it all. Jesus is so loving. He's so gracious. He's so generous. He doesn't mind sharing his bride with the pagan gods of the culture around you. Perhaps that's how it went. Jesus is loving. He is gracious. He is generous yet he is also jealous. Jesus is jealous. So he loves his bride with a jealous love. He's gracious, but he has a jealous graciousness toward his bride. Because all of the attributes of Christ are in perfect harmony with one another. You cannot use one attribute to erase or nullify another one. They all exist together in perfect harmony. To understand how grievous and reprehensible it is to say that you love Christ well, at the same time, trying to worship the God of money and pleasure and reputation and material possessions or whatever, imagine you're at a wedding and just before the bride says her vows to the groom, this is what happens. So you're a friend of the bride, you're there witnessing the ceremony, the bride's about to say her vows to the groom and she asks all her ex-boyfriends to come up on the stage next to her groom. It is funny and sad at the same time and the groom asks what's going on what what are you what are you doing and she says to the groom don't worry i love you the most but you don't always make me as happy as i know i deserve to be so i brought them along in those instances when you don't make me as happy as i deserve to be they're going to make up for what you lack that's the kind of repulsive relationship that this woman named Jezebel was promoting, and the worst part, that the church was tolerating. It was going on under their noses, in front of their eyes, and they were just letting it happen. So why is this woman called Jezebel? Well, I think she's called Jezebel for the same reason that none of you have nor ever will name your daughter Jezebel, (laughs) okay? No parent you know, you have that moment where they hand you the, that your daughter for the first time, and it's just this great moment, and with a smile you say, My dear Jezebel. <laughs> Nobody does that. No one's done. Maybe when they're three years old and they've gotten in the flower in the pantry, you might say, We should have named you Jezebel. <laughs> Jezebel was the arch nemesis of the prophet Elijah. And she shows up throughout 1 Kings, uh, Kings 16 to 21. So you're gonna read some of the background. You can go there at another time. And arch nemesis, so think, you know, kids, if you're thinking arch nemesis, what's that? Think what the Joker is to Batman, Jezebel was to Elijah. Or what Thanos is to the Avengers, Jezebel was to Elijah. And Elijah is pursuing purity. He's trying to honor the Lord. He feels like he's all by himself. And he has this woman, Jezebel, who is seducing her husband into bringing in Baal worship into the nation of Israel, and she is... Grossly successful. Because at the end of the reign of King Ahab, it says this in 1 Kings 21, 25. There was never anyone like Ahab. Now that sounds good to start, right? If that was your epitaph, that'd be great. There's never anyone like Ahab, but it goes on. Who gave himself over to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. That's not so good. You don't want to be known for That's not famous, that's infamous. But here's why he was so well known for this and why he gave himself over to do what is evil? Because he was influenced by his wife, Jezebel, seducing him, drawing him into this Baal worship, and then he pushes it out to the people of the nation of Israel, and they are all drawn away. So Jesus, in calling this woman Jezebel, it, it could be her real name. I don't know that it is. I don't think that's the point. The point is, Jesus is trying to Awaken, shock awake the consciences of these people in this church by drawing them back to the Old Testament and reminding them of what Jezebel did to the people of Israel in the Old Testament so that they might, like Elijah, have a passion for the purity of God's people and pursue faithfulness to the Lord. That's why the term Jezebel is brought up. Well, the other question that we need to reflect on is how does a church like Thyatira which is commended for their love and their faith and their service and their patient endurance and growing in that, how does it get to a place where it tolerates a teacher and teaching like this? What happened? Like, think of it like a crash site. You come to the crash site and you want to pull out the black box and you want to look at what went wrong in this church. Or to bring it home to us, what factors would keep a church like us from practicing a right kind of judgment? in a a situation, in an instant like this. I'm not going to flesh out all these thoughts, but just throw them out there. Could it be that we don't practice the right kind of judgment because we've bought into the culture's redefinition of tolerance? That tolerance doesn't mean let's agree to disagree, and we both can't be right. But now tolerance means you have your truth, and I have my truth, and I love your truth, and you love my truth, and let's kumbaya together. That's not a biblical definition of tolerance. Or could it be that we wrongly see loving someone and rebuking someone or correcting someone as completely opposed to one another? That those two things cannot exist together. You cannot love and discipline. Those those are opposites. And I would say, no. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, therefore repent. Jesus' rebuke and discipline of the church of Thyatira is not an evidence of his lack of love. It is an evidence of his love for the church. If I didn't care about my kids, I would let them do whatever they want, let them eat whatever they want, would not ever pay any attention to them. But because I love my kids, I discipline them. Isn't that right, Lewis? He affirmed that. Yeah, he did affirm that, yeah. Or could it be that we don't practice a right kind of judgment because our values are off? We value giftedness and charisma more than godliness and character and are too willing to turn a blind eye when character and godliness is lacking. Could that be it? Or could it be that we have more of a fear of man than we have a fear of God? We're more afraid of offending a person than we are of offending and dishonoring the Lord. And this is what I struggle greatly with. There's not been one single time where I didn't know that I needed to go and to confront someone, to correct someone, to admonish them. It was clear discernible, uh, moral struggle. And every time I knew I had to do that, I felt this tug of war in my heart. Should I honor God and do what I know I need to do? Or should I overlook this, ignore this, and think you know, things will be nice and peachy and keen between us, myself, and this person? Because I love when people think highly of me. And I know confronting someone ruins that. So do I want to give that up? Do I fear God enough to give up my fear of man. And to be honest, I've lost that tug of war sometimes where I I was more concerned about offending a person than I was offending God, therefore chose not to offend the person and realized in my conscience that I could not rest because I had dishonored the Lord and not done what I knew in my conscience I needed to do. Or perhaps we fail to practice the right kind of judgment because we neglect our personal individual responsibility to be good Bereans who examine all human teaching in light of God's teaching in his word. That we, we abdicate our responsibility to know God's word, to know it personally, and instead say, I'll just believe what they teach. They, they seem smart, they seem good. And I know that is true in my case, but I would still tell you to study the word for yourself. And I love it when people from San Harbor come up to me with questions, with challenges, with pushback, because it always presses me to dig deeper, to be more faithful to be more studious, to present myself as a workman approved who rightly handles the word of truth. And I know that in this church, I cannot get away with anything. And that's sometimes scary, and it's also a very good thing. So I'm often in my office, I kind of lower my Netflix watching and study a little bit harder (laughs) each week. Well, after rebuking them for failing to practice the right kind of judgment, Jesus demonstrates what it looks like to pursue a practice of the right kind of judgment in verse 21. So look at verse 21. He said this, I gave her time to repent. That's key. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So Jesus is slow to anger. He's patiently pursuing repentance. He bears with unrepentance far longer than it ever deserves to be born with, such that no criticism of being harsh and critical and unloving and capricious will ever stick against Jesus. His kindness patiently endures with us that it might lead us to repentance. So what does that mean for us? It means that the right kind of judgment exercised in the church amongst one another means that we gently, patiently pursue those who are caught in sin, always with the hope of seeing them restored and brought back. So if, if a sheep wanders from the fold, what faithfulness in practicing a right kind of judgment looks like means going after them, not just ignoring it or neglecting it. And it means when we go after them, we go after them not to push them over the cliff, you miserable wretch, but to bring them back into the fold, to be restored, to call them back just as Jesus sought us when we were stranger, wandering from the fold of God and interposed his precious blood for us. That's what it looks like. But if we fail to exercise a responsibility, to exercise the right kind of judgment, there are times when Jesus will take matters into his own hands, that he will exercise a cleansing of the church that is meant to sober the church in regards to sin and righteousness and holiness. So look at verse 22 and 23. And I think these these are metaphors that he's using on here. Some of them have realities behind them that are are connected to it. But he says, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. So there's going to be some sort of judgment that comes perhaps even in the real the real form of sickness and suffering and tribulation. But whatever it is, it's coming because Jesus who was patient, who endured, was long suffering, gave time and the time has come because she has not repented. And therefore those, her and those who are with her are going to face his judgment because Jesus will not see something come between him and his bride, the church. He loves his church too much. And the point of it, is that the churches would stand sober-mindedly before Christ, knowing that pursuing purity to him is serious, it is serious. I was serving at a church, and I don't know, maybe, perhaps you've been in a church of your own where you've seen the church discipline process play out, where you've seen sin come to light that's serious, that needs to be dealt with, and either it wasn't dealt with properly and it had negative effects, or it was dealt with properly and it had positive effects. Well, I was in a church when a serious sin came to light and it was handled in a proper God-earning way and it had great blessing on the church, as grievous as the situation was. It was a well-respected, long-time volunteer in the church, committed a grievous sin, was not repentant of it, and the church walked through the church discipline process, biblically, faithfully, so much so that the Lord used it to impress upon all his people the seriousness of sin. It put the smelling salt of eternity in our nostrils. It was sobering, and it made us cling to Christ. All of that more, knowing that temptation is serious. We do not take days off as Christians. So for the church to pursue purity, it must practice the right kind of judgment. And finally, we pursue purity and faithfulness to Jesus by keeping our eyes fixed on the coming of his kingdom. Keeping our eyes fixed on the coming of his kingdom. There's a sense in which the Christian life is as much about the future as it is the past. We look forward as much as we look back. In fact, John Stott put it like this. The Christian life is one in which we are looking in opposite directions at the same time, always. We're constantly looking back at what Christ has done in his first coming, his death for sin, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. But it's also one in which we're always looking forward. We're anticipating what he's gonna do when he comes again, that there's gonna be no more sin. He's gonna wipe every tear from our eyes, no more suffering, righteousness will reign and all things will be made new. And so we need to be looking in those two directions. But by looking forward to and anticipating the second coming of Christ, by looking to the future, we are helped in growing in the spiritual practice of delayed gratification, something our generation, particularly mine, struggles greatly with. And this is what Jesus calls the church to in verse 25, delayed gratification. Look at verse 25. Only, church, hold fast what you have until I come. Do not let it go. Do not trade it in for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Do not trade it in for the empty temptations of this present world. And the way we anticipate the future and grow in delayed gratification is by meditating on the promises of Jesus. Each of these letters ends with Jesus giving his church promises that help them anticipate the future that they might live more faithfully in the present. So think of the promises of Jesus like looking through a telescope, I don't know if you ever look through a telescope, but when you look through a telescope, you're looking at something very, very far away, and it's maybe like a distant star in the night sky, clear night or something, yeah, in the, the wilderness. And that telescope is meant to bring that star very, very far away, very close, so that you can see it very clearly as if you could reach out and touch it. That's what Jesus' promises help us do. It's like looking through a telescope to the celestial city, to that future kingdom, as if it's right in front of our face, that we could reach out and touch it so that we might anticipate it all the more, knowing that the glories and the joys that await us are greater than the temptations in front of us right now. So hold fast what you have until I come. So for these believers, part of the temptation, the compromise, came from the fact that it often looked like they were on the losing side. They were part of the wrong kingdom. They were they were on the visitor stands and the home team was crushing them. And it seemed like the power of Rome, the prominence of paganism all around them, the, the moral deprivation was too much, it was unbeatable. And so they were starting to think, if you can't beat them, why not join them, right? I feel that as a Minnesota Twins fan, whenever we play the Yankees, I should probably just cheer for the Yankees. We're gonna lose no matter what, but I'm still holding fast to what I have, which is not much. But Jesus says this, look at verse 26 and 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earth and pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father." So Jesus is alluding to Psalm two. It's a Psalm, you can look it up later, in which the eternal rule of God's kingdom is so certain certain and so sure that God sits in the heaven and laughs at the nations that plot against him, that rebel against him. He just sits back and has a good chuckle to himself because he knows his kingdom is unconquerable. It's going to come in its fullness. And so Jesus is saying to these discouraged believers, remember that promise? I have given my son an inheritance of nations and I do not lie. He speaks with a tongue that never slips, with a pen whose ink never wears away. And he said, you will not be sitting, when when the clock of history runs out, you will not be sitting in the stands of the visiting team holding your head in shame because you lost. No, you'll be like, Uh, a a college student from Tennessee rushing the field, pulling down the goalposts because you beat Alabama decisively. That's what he says. I thought of the scene of that game, I think it was a week ago or so. I thought, now that's what the kingdom of God, when it comes, is going to be like. We're going to be rushing the field, maybe pulling down goalposts or something. (laughs) It's not you who will be subject to the nation of Rome, but nations like Rome will be subject to the kingdom of God in all its glory and fullness because you will get to share in my victory. So hold fast what you have until I come. Keep pursuing purity. And then the last promise he says is to these believers who feel that the darkness of sin and evil and unbelief and moral depravity is so thick that the light of God's kingdom, there's no way it could penetrate through this. There's no way the gospel could spread. There's no way we're gonna survive this moral darkness. It is choking out the light too much. And he says to this, he says this to them in verse 28. And to him who overcomes, I will give him the morning star. So the morning star is that last star in the night sky just before the sun rises on a new day and dispels all the darkness and all the shadows flee away. It's a metaphor for the fact that when the kingdom comes, all darkness of evil, all shadows of unbelief will flee away in the light of God's glory and grace at the coming of Christ. And so what Jesus is saying is anticipate that day when the sun of eternity rises to never set again, when the sun of the kingdom of God rises to reign and rule forever. Anticipate that moment when the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness. And perhaps that first moment we experience in the eternal kingdom of Christ will feel like, a little bit like, what Sam Gamgee describes the moment he woke up after the ring was destroyed in the return of the king. So we're in a Lord of the Rings obsession mindset at the Jacobson household, and this scene. So Sam goes with Frodo. If you don't know the story, I'm going to give it to you briefly. Goes with Frodo to destroy that ring that is corrupting Middle Earth, and it finally goes into Mount Doom and is destroyed. But they kind of pass out at the end and they don't know what happened. They got carried away by eagles, and he wakes up in Rivendell. And this is what Sam says: Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count it fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up and laughing he sprang from his bed. How do I feel he cried? Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. I think what Tolkien is doing there is he's giving us just a flavor through what the English language can do of what it's going to feel like to enter that kingdom. What a joy it will be. The the funeral of all our sorrows and the resurrection of all of our joys. So hold fast what you have till he comes. Keep pursuing purity and faithfulness to the Lord. As we close this sermon, would you take your bulletins? And would you turn with me to page 8 and let's recite this closing, responsive reading from Revelation to remind ourselves what our hope is in, what we're anticipating. So I'll read the words in italics, and would you respond with the words corporately there in bold? He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let me pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you have given us your promises, these precious and very great promises. And Lord, may we hold on to them. May we hold fast what we have until you come. And Lord, may our anticipation of your eternal kingdom ignite in us a passion to fight sin and to pursue purity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're calling an audible. We're going to sing, but we're going to use this piano over here. This is why. One of the tests of worship is can it pass the power outage test? And I mean this seriously. This is a good teaching moment. If our worship in the church is so dependent on us having power and smoke and lights and mirrors and bells and whistles that we can't worship when the power goes out, then we're not aligned with the Bible and what it calls it. Worship should be so simple that you can do it in an underground church in China and in a South Florida place when the power goes out, even though you're sweating a little bit. Okay? So let's stand again. Let's turn to page uh nine and ten of your bowl do you come up and help us sing okay we're, we're gonna get it we're gonna get it tuned oh and, and I gotta note the power will not come on till 115 okay so in case you're waiting. <laughs>